ties everything together. Don't you? Amen? Amen. Really. Uh, because, you know, it's not like uh, I'm giving them my notes and they're giving me their notes. Uh, basically, it's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, that teaches these things. Uh, and it's, uh, it's just amazing. And uh, we're just so lucky to be part of such a great church. Acts chapter 17, as we wind our way through Acts. And by the way, I know some of you within the next week or two or three are going to start <coughs> heading north, and we're going to miss you. Uh, but I want you to continue to be a part of this class. And so one of the things that we're, we're endeavoring to do, and be patient with us, is we plan on putting the tapes from the class online, uh, so on the Internet, so that you'll be able to get them. So if you take a look and go to... Uh, our website, GarippaFoundation.org, uh, we'll start within the next week or so putting the tapes on. And you'll be able to connect. So even if you're not here, you'll be able to go and listen and connect. You shouldn't be able to, you shouldn't uh, miss anything that we're doing. So I hope you'll do that. And in fact, I hope you'll use it with friends who may not be able to have a Bible study. And you'll be able to direct them to something like this that who knows how it may, may affect their life. Uh, Acts chapter 17, and I like this one, I, I entitled this one, So, You'll Want to Be a Missionary. <laughs> you'll want to be a missionary, okay? You're all ready to go, and, and what a great role model in Paul. Uh, and it's just amazing when we study what he has gone through with his life, uh, and, and what a single-minded determination he has to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now he's in northern Greece, <coughs> uh, and he's in uh, Thessalonica. And I wanted to give you some preliminary comments about that so that you put this in context. And now Thessalonica is the capital of Macedonia. That is a major center for business in the world at that time. Uh, the city was mostly Greek. Now we're talking about Thessalonica. It was mostly Greek, but it was controlled by Rome. It was considered a free city, and a free city was a, a city that did not have a Roman garrison within it. So, effectively, they were uh, independent, governing themselves under the control of Rome without a Roman garrison. Paul labored while he was there in the tent-making trade. That was Paul's trade. He was a tent-maker. Uh, and whenever he had time in which he needed to support himself, he always went back in that. You'll, he talks about it in some of his other epistles. And what you see here is that he labors for three separate Sabbaths. Three weeks he labors in this city to advance the gospel. Uh, and there are some key words that you're going to pick up from this chapter which describe how Paul advances the gospel. Here are some of those words, key words. First, he reasoned with them. Reasoned. Okay? Through questions and answers. He wasn't dogmatic. He didn't dictate. He didn't set out rules. He didn't say you're a bunch of losers. You're going to hell. You're a bunch of pagans. You don't know what you're doing. He reasoned with them. Okay? He engaged them in a discussion. He then explained, it's another word you can underline, explained the scriptures. He then proved 
There's another word. He proved that Jesus was the Messiah. Then he also uh, effectively announced or preached the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the key to his ministry. It is the key that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. There is no other religion, there is no other faith that has at the head of its faith God who comes to earth, who is killed on a cross, and then is raised again from the dead. And raised again from the dead in the sight of numerous witnesses, there is none, no other, no one else can say that. And that's what he preached. Okay? And so he's, that separated him. That was effectively the core of where he was. And so now we're going to start this journey as we go on three cities. Three cities in northern Greece as he's advancing the gospel, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 17. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Remember, he's going into the Old Testament Jewish synagogues, and he's there reasoning with these people, and what he's saying to them is, open your scriptures, look at your Bible, look at what God told you, look from Genesis right through, see the tread, see how, the, how this pattern follows, and see how sacrifices had to be made in the Old Testament to God. Sacrifices constantly from Abraham, through Moses, through Isaac, through Jacob, it all passes constantly sacrificing through the holy days. And now finally, with all those sacrifices, with all those animals that had been killed, with all that blood, we were still imperfect. We were still flawed. We were still full of sin. We were still an enemy of God until God sent the perfect sacrifice, Jesus, his son. And this is what he said, effectively saying this, put, laying this out in the synagogue, as he said he had to suffer he had to die, and he had to rise from the dead. So you can imagine hearing this message from him if you sat in that synagogue. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. And that means, when he says not a few, that means a lot of women. A lot of prominent women. So you see <coughs> this crusade, effectively, this evangelical crusade in this synagogue having great success. Large numbers of people are coming forward. Large people, large people are coming forward and giving their heart to God and becoming Christians. And what have we learned? Every time, the gospel of Jesus Christ advances, what happens? Satan. Satan 
every single step of the way. Every time we've opened up Acts and we've advanced one step, two steps, what happens? Satan comes up and says, this has to stop. He may have defeated me at the cross, but I'll defeat this church because these people are weak. Right? They're not God. I can strike them. I can, I can tempt them. I can persecute them. I'll do everything in my power to stop this movement. And he does it again. And you see it again in verse 5. Look at what goes on. And how Satan here used the Jews who were not evangelicalized, those who, were not, who did not come to God, but in fact became institutionally hardened against hearing the gospel. These Jews, in verse 5, says as follows, But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. I said to myself, bad characters. Bad characters from the marketplace. Is this New Jersey? <laughs> bad characters from the marketplace. It's not the kind of thing you expect to read in your Bible, is it? Bad characters from the marketplace. Folks, here's what that means. Thugs. Okay? Thugs. They went out and got thugs. They went out and got thugs, effectively criminals, all right? Because they were so incensed at how the gospel was advancing that they would do anything to stop it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being that incensed at the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can you imagine? But you see how Satan inspires and when he draws a line in the sand, how, how it's just unbelievable to even understand. And so they went out, they got these criminals, and they formed a mob, and they started a riot. And then it says they rushed to Jason's house. And Jason, we know from other epistles from Paul, Jason is a relative of Paul. And so they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials. In other words, they were so incensed and so angered that they went to Jason's house. He, they didn't find Paul and Silas. Well, that didn't stop them. Jason was the guy who was the host. We'll grab him and we'll bring him up on charges. And that's exactly what they do. So they bring this man who really was not at all involved in this. Uh, and, <clears throat> and they shouted as they brought him before the city officials, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Well, how would you know what they've done all over the world? Well... Maybe if you were Satan, you would know that. Maybe if, you, maybe if your demons were reporting back to him about what had gone on, think about it. They had knowledge of what was going on. Don't think that this is not a demonic issue here. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason, Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying. Here's the charge. They are all defying Caesar's decree <clears throat> saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. There is another king, one 
call Jesus. This is the charge. This effectively is the charge that they laid at Jesus' feet. And it's interesting because I want to let you hear what Jesus said in defense of himself on that charge because you know that during the crucifixion, Jesus hardly opened his mouth. But he did open his mouth on this one issue. And turn, if you would, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. John 18. Verse 36. Jesus is now responding to Pilate. <clears throat> Verse 36. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Verse 37, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So there you have it from Jesus. Yes, I am a king. You said it correctly, but not a king of this world. I am a king of the spiritual world, of heaven. And, and to laying the claim aside that anybody who would say that Jesus was in any way trying to usurp Caesar is just a ridiculous charge. And so, effectively, that's the same charge that they brought up to Jesus. And so, really understanding the, the how false that charge is, uh, you, you understand what's going on. And so continuing on, they go, they, they say as follows, when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. In other words, what they said here is, we don't have Paul, we don't have Silas. Well, you'll post a bond and if they come back, somebody's going to go to prison. <coughs> and you're going to be involved in this, we'll let you go for the time being. And so effectively what happens here is that the work of God at that time is curtailed. It moves on. And that's how the work of God is. It's there for a time. There's an opportunity. The window opens. And then if there's an obstacle and the Lord believes that it's, that it's time to move on to another appropriate venue, the Lord moves the missionaries on. And that's what's happened. And so look how that happens in verse 10. <clears throat> as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And that's about 45 miles away. All right? But they left at night. On arriving there, what do they do? They went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, this struck me as like, wow. Man, you guys are amazing. They're out to kill you in Macedonia, in, in Thessalonica. You left under the cover of night. You escape. They had to sneak you out of town. You travel 45 miles, and what's the first thing that you do? We're heading to church. 
it just gives you an idea of what it takes to be a missionary. What kind of conviction, what kind of fire of the Holy Spirit you had to have in order to go through these temptations. And this is a tremendous lesson for you in your own life. When you look at this and you say, boy, I would love to be able to respond the way Paul does and Silas and Barnabas. Well, really, you want to you respond like that? <clears throat> you want to have the fire? Then you have to be filled and refilled and refilled and re-sanctified and re-sanctified every day because you see what it takes that in the face of constant persecution, you can look and you look out and you see these demons that you know are trying to destroy you and these people who are trying to destroy you. And what do you do? You head to church. You head to the synagogue. You continue to do what God has called you to do. It's an amazing story. <clears throat> and so I love what they say next in verse 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And I think this is a, uh, a model. This is a paradigm for really how you need to be as a Christian. And here's the deal. When you hear someone get up and preach or someone make a statement, you need to be able to check those statements through the Holy Spirit. You hear a word, the question becomes, does your, does your spirit inside you give you an affirmation? Is there an affirmation to these statements? Is what's being said affirming to your soul? Or is it, or do you receive a check in the spirit? And by the way, this includes things that I'm saying. You should do these things. If you're not getting a confirmation in your spirit. And when that happens, you need to go back into the Bible. You need to get in, on your knees and pray and look and read go back to the word and see if the word is confirming to what i said confirming if something some other buddy, other person gets up and see and says is it confirming how many times you're on television and you're going through the the channels and you hear myriad of things coming over the air that supposedly said in the name of god supposedly said in the name of god folks i hope and truthfully hope that when you listen to these things, you go back to the Bible and pray about it and see if, in fact, it's affirming. Because I submit to you that much of what you hear is not. It's bad theology. Okay? But the Bereans were raised. They were, it, was, it, was, it was considered to be noble. When Luke writes about them, you could see the way the Holy Spirit looked at them. These were noble people because they, they went back and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And I'm sure that Paul was gratified by that. He wasn't insulted. He was gratified to see people who had that kind of, of, of hunger and thirst for God's word. And then it says, many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Do you notice now how women are being raised up in this church? The very obvious point. Women are taking a prominent role in the New Testament church. Whereas we saw in the Old Covenant, women seemed to take, well, definitely took a secondary place in the worship. Now you see women, prominent women, being raised up in the church. And that is because under Jesus Christ, there is equality. There is equality, and you see it. And so you, you see 
that uh, the women are coming forward in great numbers and accepting the, the gospel of Jesus. Uh, and it's, it's just an, an amazing story. And so in verse 13, what do we know? Oh, things are advancing. The gospel is moving forward. God is moving. Things are great. Yeah, things are great. Things are great. And Satan says, I have to stop it. I have to stop it. And that's a lesson for you in your own life. That's a lesson for you in your own life. Because here's the thing, folks. When you decide, yeah, I'm tired. I don't feel like going to church. I, I Listen, I'm busy. He'll understand. I don't really need to. I, leave, I don't need to go to the BLG today. It's a long day. I'm exhausted. And then one day turns into two, and two turns into three, and then a month goes by, and you know what? All of a sudden, you're not reading your Bible. I'm busy. It's just I've got a lot of things on my mind. And you know what happens? You start that slide. And here's what happens when you start that slide. Here's what Satan does. This is good news. Excellent work. You should do this. You should take more time off. You know what? People don't appreciate you. Rest. You need the rest. And do you think Satan is out there targeting you when you're doing that? Oh, no. he's happy. Good work. Go ahead. Go ahead. Take more time off. Take more time off. Well, here, if all of a sudden you say, you know what? I want to do some volunteer work at the church. I want to get into a, an outreach ministry. Uh, I would like to be a more active in the BLG. Uh, in fact, I'm going to look for other Bible studies to go, oh, really? That's what you want to do? That's when you're going to find Satan coming up and putting all kinds of obstacles in your life. And that should be the proof, the proof to you that what you're doing is advancing spiritually. Okay, yes. Uh, you know, John, it just makes me think uh, the, the thugs had to be paid. And it, it just seems like it's so evil, easy for the evil people to raise funds to pay the thugs. Yeah. And I'm looking at uh, the Alliance Defense Fund trying to fight off the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, which is deconstructing the Constitution. You know, the, the money is so much greater on the evil side. Well said. Uh, Ed, Ed is, is making the point of how the money seems to go forward very easily to bring in the thugs the paid mercenaries against them. When you look at the, the things that have to be raised, the money that has to be raised, like the Alliance Defense Fund that's fighting the American Civil Liberties Union, how hard it is. Well, Ed, it's very simple because a lot of people don't get the message. We don't get the message. We don't understand. We don't understand we're fighting principalities. Principalities. The forces of evil. I think that's what it's about, Ed. I think we don't understand how we are actually facing off a kingdom of evil. Satan has his realm. It's here. All right? It's here. And there are demons all over the world. We talked about this. We said, I told you, that at the time when there was the angelic revolt, one-third of the angelic force was thrown out of, out of heaven. One-third. Just think. One-third of them are now demons serving Lucifer. They're all over the place. And if you don't think that they are in every country of the world, well, folks, then you haven't opened a history book. You haven't read a newspaper. They're everywhere. And the problem is that I believe that most good people don't understand this. 
They just think, well, bad things happen. Yeah, yes, bad things happen, but let me clue you something. There's somebody on the other side who, on the other side, who is engineering much of the evil, and that's what's going on here, just like you see here. And so, uh, this is an, an amazing situation where they actually uh, paid people uh, and and uh, to to rise up and and form a mob. And so, again. Moving forward, they agitated the crowd and stirred them up, and the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but had uh, Silas and Timothy stay behind. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and left him with instructions for Silas and Timothy, Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So what's gone on here? Paul has been sent by ship to Athens. Silas and Timothy are staying behind. They will join him later. And so look at the first verse of what <clears throat> Paul sees when he walks into Athens. Let's understand what Athens was at this time. Um, Athens was effectively this still the center of, of uh, culture and education in the world. But it was no longer a center of power. It was a, a city uh, in decline. Athens had reached its, its uh, height about the year 400 B.C. And so now, in the year 47 A.D., come a, come a few years plus or minus, they were in decline, but it was still the center of education. But people, well, historians say, and this is a, a quote I got from one of the historians and that as I was studying this, that it was said in Athens it would be easier to find a god with a small g than to find a man. That's direct from some historians. Easier to find a god than a man. In other words, the city was inundated by idolatry. Inundated to such an extent that look at the first verse what Paul says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Okay? Now you say to me, Brother John, all right, I understand. I know God doesn't, God's upset at idols. But why was Paul, why was Paul on this missionary trip so obsessed and distressed? What is that about? Well, I'm going to show you what it was about. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. He's writing this letter to the Corinthian church. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? He's talking about communion. Are we not participating in the death and the communion of Jesus when we do that. 
And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? When we take the bread, are we not becoming one in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. So now he's gone from the New Testament issue of communion. Now he's going back and he's looking at the, the uh, Old Covenant. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar in the high holy days? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? In other words, am I saying that the idol itself has power? His answer, no. But, but, and here's what you should underline in your Bible. But, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. To demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You understand the seriousness of what he saw? Effectively, he saw an entire city worshiping demons. They didn't even realize it themselves what they were doing. They didn't even realize it themselves. And he continues on, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part of both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Oh my, this, this really struck me with power. I mean, I, I read this, these verses to my wife yesterday. And she said to me, is that, is that, a, is that in the Bible? And I said, yes, yes, it's in the Bible. I don't ever remember anybody ever preaching that or speaking that. Well, I'm going to tell you something. We should be preaching this. We should be speaking. Do you realize the seriousness of what's going on here? And why I'm saying this is because Athens was obsessed with idolatry. Well, folks, come to America. All right? All right? Come to America. 2011. All right? Is it a little white doll with, a, with, a, with a, 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 a peace symbol? Is that what you're worshiping? No, no, no. But look, there's any number of things that have now become the idols that have replaced that. And you can fill it in. Okay? You start with what it is. Money, success, power, possessions. Okay? You fill it in. You fill it in. These idols in our life. And I mean, look at what God is saying about how he views idols and how idols come between us and God. This really, <clears throat> this really disturbed me as I was reading this and preparing it because I was saying to myself, he was distressed, he was distressed. And this is a man who's going in to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a city that is basically, basically giving their heart over to idolatry. It's pretty sobering pretty sobering and so what happens in verse 17 so he reasoned in the synagogue again you see the words 
He reasoned. He didn't go in, what does he say? Does he go in and right away attack them? He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. Now he's in the marketplace. He's in the center of the city, a city obsessed with idolatry. How is he going to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? How are you going to advance the gospel in a world that's obsessed with idolatry, that's obsessed with everything other than what's proper? This is going to be an, an eye-opener to us to see how he does this. And so a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? That was a put-down. That was a serious put-down. What that meant, according to the original translation, is, is what is this idiot saying about a philosophy that's not even his philosophy? He's talking about some second-hand philosophy that he's parroting. That's what they said about it. All right? So you want to be a missionary. You want to be a missionary. And so others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Do you notice right there the key? What's he preaching? He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now this is on the, the Mars Hill. This becomes Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. And many scholars say <clears throat> it is one of the most brilliant pieces uh, of, of uh, rhetoric ever put together advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ built for a pagan audience. How is this man going to speak about God to a pagan audience? Um, and you're going to see as we spend some time taking his sermon apart and studying what he does and how he does it uh, and how he constructs it to see how God led him to do that. And one of the things, one of the things that have been criticized here is that Paul, in doing this, as he talks to them, one of the things that he latches onto is he sees this area where there are thousands, literally thousands of altars to all these gods. But he finds one because they were so obsessed. So obsessed, one is to the unknown God. Meaning, just in case we messed up and there's a God out there that we haven't really worshipped, we're going to say this is the unknown God. Well, Paul latches onto that. He latches onto that and he constructs this sermon predicated on the paradigm of the unknown God that you're already worshiping, but you don't know who he is. Now, um, the, uh, a significant point for you as we stop at this issue is that there are theologians who have criticized this sermon. There are theologians who say, you know, there was never a church established in Athens. There was no church. Whereas in other places, there were a church. And so Paul's efforts, which were largely intellectual, failed. Well, when I read this, 
really with an open heart, I see at the end that there were people that gave their heart to the Lord. And I would submit to you that if you go someplace and one person is brought to Jesus, that's a success. Amen? Amen. One is a success. And number two, it's clear that the Lord sent him there. All right? The Lord sent him there. I don't believe the Lord would send him someplace that he was not meant to be. And we don't often understand how God works. And while he may work in a very visible outward manifestation in some area, in other areas he may not work like that. We don't know. But we're going to study next week as we take apart his sermon on Mars Hill to the Athenians. We'll stop at this point and uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that you've been with us again this week. We thank you for your words, Lord. I ask you that, that we consider them, that we multiply it in your heart, in our hearts, Lord. That we reflect on what you've given us. Uh, and Lord, our prayer is that all of us, all of us want each day to go closer to you. We want to be your messenger, Lord. We want to go out in the world and be your servant and to bring others to you, Lord. And so I ask a blessing on all these dear people protection for all of them this coming week and bring them again back safely next week. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.